1: a podcast focused on continuing education created by pharmacists for pharmacists. PTCE is the leader in pharmacy and managed care education. In these episodes, listeners will be presented with the most recent clinical updates and strategies for implementing into practice. And now, here's our host and founder of the Pharmacy Podcast Network, Todd Yuri.
0: Hey, Pharmacy Podcast Nation, this is PTCE Pharmacy Connect Welcome back. We hope that you are having a great summer. And if you're listening to this and it's the fall, then I'm going to just keep saying what I say to my friends and family that I think time's speeding up. So if anybody ever wants to do a study, it has to be evidence-based. Um, let's talk about uh, proving that time is speeding up. I want to welcome back uh, Dr. Catherine Maples uh, to the podcast PTCE Pharmacy Connects Part 2 of Multiple Myeloma uh, Pharmacists as Therapy Experts. Dr. Maples, welcome back.
1: Thank you very much, Todd. I'm very excited to be here.
0: I am as well. And So we're going to be talking about caring for patients with multiple myeloma through um, pharmacist-directed supportive care. And then we're going to also talk about toxicity management strategies and how the actual therapy sometimes can start to stray off and and become um, maybe a a toxicity issue or concern based on our experts. And putting you back in the hot seat, uh, Catherine, you are our expert today today. But before we get going, just in case you haven't listened to part one, it's it's not a big deal. It's okay. The link will be in the show notes. But just in case uh, this is the first time uh, that they're listening uh, to our discussion, Catherine, just give us a short overview of your background.
1: Yes, absolutely. So um, as you mentioned, I'm the clinical pharmacy specialist that works with the multiple myeloma group here at the Winship Cancer Institute. Um, I have been working in myeloma for about five years now, and I really love myeloma. It's a very exciting time. We are seeing new drugs come to market um, each year. In the last decade, I think we've had about 10 and, and more coming down the pipeline. So. Um, it's a very subspecialized disease, but um, I, I think it's a very exciting time to be practicing in this area, um, and we're we're seeing ways to really improve patients' uh, disease outcomes and their quality of life.
0: So we talked about in our previous episode what multiple myeloma is and the numerous therapies options. We talked about timing. We talked about administration. We uh, kind of went over the recommended uh, national guidelines and and you really gave us a good uh, starter, Catherine, into uh, treatments available. There were so many. And, you know, one of you, would you just take a, a brief um, moment, briefly st- review um, the, the multiple myeloma, what it is for our listeners, just in case they didn't listen to part one?
1: Yes, absolutely. So multiple myeloma is a malignancy of our plasma cells. So it is in the blood cancer family. Um, and what happens in multiple myeloma is that the malignant plasma cells produce Proteins, uh, specifically one protein. So we call it a monoclonal uh, proliferation of proteins into the blood and urine. And the accumulation of these malignant plasma cells and the proteins that they produce ultimately can lead to end organ damage, which is what we are trying to treat, prevent, and avoid. Um, And the end organ damage can be kind of summarized by using the CRAB acronym. So the CRAB criteria of hypercalcemia renal dysfunction, anemia, and bone disease. Um, And I think that that is something that we're gonna dive in a little bit deeper today in terms of the supportive care for myeloma. Um, But I think what's unique is that we have supportive care measures due to the disease itself. um, And we also have supportive care measures due to the treatment. Um, So those are kind of two different buckets that we wanna consider And maybe a little bit challenging at times to balance both. But in general, myeloma is a hematologic malignancy. Um, It's unfortunately still considered incurable, but we are on the path to cure.
0: So there's some decisions that will be made in moving forward with therapies. Kind of go into the different treatments that would be used if a patient was newly diagnosed or if they've been on a therapy before?
1: Yes, absolutely. So a newly diagnosed uh, patient is typically going to receive at least a triplet therapy with a proteasome inhibitor, an immunomodulatory agent, and steroid being dexamethasone. Um, so those proteasome inhibitors include bortezomib, carfilzomib, ixazomib. Um, in the frontline setting, we're most commonly combining that with lenalidomide as our immunomodulatory agent, um, and then dexamethasone as as the steroid. Uh, We are also seeing the inclusion of the CD38 monoclonal antibody of daratumumab in this frontline setting. Um, So we we can also see some quadruplet therapies there as well. Um, But once a patient reaches the relapse refractory stage of the disease, uh, it's one of the most challenging parts of myeloma because there's no universal standard on the proper sequencing. So uh, we, we most commonly are going to see an anti-CD38 backbone regimen in that first relapse setting. Um, this could be with daratumumab or with isatuximab. but moving beyond that first relapse, it really becomes patient-specific um, in terms of the treatment selection, but some of the agents that we can choose from include Salinexor, which is an XPO1 inhibitor, uh, belantamab mafidotin, which is a BCMA antibody drug conjugate. We have the off-label venetoclax um, indication. Venetoclax is now in the NCCN guidelines for patients that have translocation eleven fourteen, And then we have our CAR T cells. So um, we, uh, we see a, a lot of options that can be used in that relapse setting. Um, the newly diagnosed is a little bit more straightforward with the, with the PI, IMID, and dexamethasone.
0: You know, in the last episode, Catherine, we were talking about toxicity and the whole management of that, depending on the, the patient's reactions and really, really want to build out additional information around supportive care considerations. And it sounds like there's a lot of them. So let's talk about patients with multiple myeloma, depending on um, the the therapy that they're receiving. What are some of the things that you are thinking about as a pharmacist?
1: Absolutely. There's a lot to consider here. So first, I'll kind of start broadly um, thinking about the disease and what it does to patients. And then we can dive a little bit deeper into some of the nuances and specifics with With the drugs, but broadly, um, the first bucket that I'm going to think about as a pharmacist is uh, venous thromboembolism prophylaxis. So we know that patients with cancer in general have a higher risk for developing a blood clot Uh, that could be a DVT or a PE. Um, But myeloma patients have an even higher risk due to the high doses of steroids that they receive, as well as the immunomodulatory agents that they are on, such as lenalidomide or pomalidomide. So there are two different scoring systems that you can use to help guide you with uh, determining the proper VTE prophylaxis. So there's first the Impede score. There's also the Saved score. Uh, Both of these, these scoring systems are listed in the NCCN guidelines, um, but we want to think about what other risk factors patients may have. So, are they? Do they have limited mobility? Um, did their myeloma cause them to have a, a back fracture leading to kyphoplasty, so that they're not really getting around very well? Um, do they have a history of VTE for another reason, or do they have atrial fibrillation? And so we want to think about the patient as a whole. And some of these scoring systems kind of help us do that. Um, other risk factors for VTE at baseline could be obesity. Um, so all of that gets incorporated into this. At a minimum, patients on, a, an, on an immunomodulatory agent should be on an aspirin prophylaxis regimen. But if they are at higher risk, then they may need something um, more potent than an aspirin for their VTE prophylaxis. We will use the novel oral anticoagulant agents such as Apixaban or Rivaroxaban. Um, This can be done at the prophylactic dosing. So for um, Apixaban doing the 2.5 milligrams twice daily or for Rivaroxaban doing the 10 milligrams once daily. And then um, even going beyond that, there, there may be a reason why patients should be on full dose anticoagulation rather than a prophylaxis dose. So want to think about that and, and what patients may need. Infection risk is also very important for myeloma. So I mentioned a little bit about the disease biology, um, plasma cells in a when they're functioning normally, Um, their role is to produce antibodies, um, antibodies in response to an infection or a vaccine. So they really play a role in protecting against infection. So for myeloma patients who have malignant plasma cells that are not functioning properly, uh, they are at an inherently higher risk for infection just because of their disease. And then when we add on treatment, that can lower their white blood cell count, um, can put them at at an even further risk for infection. So broadly for myeloma patients, we do wanna make sure that the guidelines do recommend that they are all vaccinated against the pneumococcal uh, vaccine. So making sure they're up to date on their pneumococcal vaccines. And then thinking about some of the individual drugs and how they add to infection risk, our proteasome inhibitors. So again, that's bortezomib, carfilzomib, and exazomib. Uh, The class effect for these drugs is that they increase risk for herpes zoster reactivation. So wanting to ensure that patients are on prophylaxis, um, this can be done with valcyclovir, acyclovir, And then our monoclonal antibodies, such as daratumumab, isoteximab, elotuzumab, um, they all also increase the risk for infection. Um, Notably, upper respiratory tract infections are commonly seen. Um, So we can check patients' IgG levels. We can give them intravenous um, IVIG to to boost any of the low IgG levels Um, and and. If the neutrophil count falls below 500 on any of these treatment regimens, it would be appropriate to initiate antibacterial prophylaxis for those patients as well. Um, So infection risk, I think, is a big one. Another uh, note about neutrophil counts while on treatment, uh, we can use growth factor for these patients. So it's very... um, easy to add twice weekly or three times weekly growth factor to help maintain the dose intensity so you're not having to constantly hold therapy um, because that can be detrimental to patients too Um, but by simply adding that growth factor in can help reduce the risk for infection and help you continue therapy without having to stop start. Um, the next broad category for these myeloma patients is their bone health. Um, so I, I've mentioned the CRAB criteria, I think a couple of times, but that B in the CRAB is, is bony lytic disease. Uh, myeloma, unfortunately, likes to attack the bones. So we want to add a bone strengthening agent for all myeloma patients that are on active, um, active therapy when they're initially diagnosed and that can be done with zoledronic acid, pomidronate, denosumab. Um, and the recommendation is to continue for up to two years. And then you would want to resume it at disease relapse. Um, the main side effect of these bone strengthening agents is the risk for osteonecrosis of the jaw with any invasive dental work. So making sure and and counseling patients, asking them if they need any invasive work done um, and delaying the start of those bone modifying agents until after they have dental clearance would be appropriate. Um, And so really working with the patient and, and their dentist to make sure that it's safe to start that. But that will help strengthen their bones and reduce the risk for any fractures. And lastly, broadly, um, is the renal dysfunction that myeloma patients have. Uh, again, in that CRAB criteria, the R. So due to the disease, patients may have renal failure or renal dysfunction upon diagnosis. They may experience it again when they have disease relapse. So we want to think about their myeloma-directed therapy that would require a dose reduction. Some of the most common agents that require a dose reduction in renal impairment are lenalidomide, pomalidomide, if they're on hemodialysis, as well as exazomib. But also some of the supportive care drugs also need to be renally dose-adjusted. So they're HSV prophylaxis, and even the bone-modifying drugs uh, such as zoledronic acid would need to be dose reduced. So it's, it goes beyond just their myeloma-directed therapy of making sure that their renal dysfunction um, and all of their meds are dosed appropriately. So those are some of the, the broad things that I think about as a pharmacist when thinking about supportive care for, for myeloma patients.
0: What about this specific drug class, uh, Catherine, can you talk a little bit about that right now?
1: Yes, absolutely. So we do want to make sure we're addressing any of the specific nuances for each of the individual drugs. Uh, some of the ones that, that really jump out to me. First, uh, I, I mentioned the, the PI class effects with the herpes zoster reactivation. With the immunomodulatory drugs, so this is your lenalidomide and pomalidomide, Um, These agents have a REMS program. So due to the... Uh, Pregnancy risk and the fetal embryo risk with these agents. Um, The REMS program is still established through the FDA, so patients have to be enrolled in the REMS program. Women of childbearing age have to take a pregnancy test before the drug can be dispensed each month. And so that's something that you have to really work with patients on, counsel them on using two forms of birth control while they're on this agent. And the VTE risk that also comes with that is another class effect. Something that's unique about lenalidomide is the diarrhea that we see with lenalidomide. Um, it's due to bile acid malabsorption. So sometimes the standard anti-diarrheal agents such as loperamide or Lomotil actually won't work very well for lenalidomide-induced diarrhea. Um, but what we can do is use a bile acid sequestrant such as cholesterol, uh, which would bind to that bile acid and reduce the diarrhea. So I, I do make sure to counsel my patients on lenalidomide to tell us when they're having diarrhea. Don't just suffer in silence and think that it's normal um, because we may need to add something like cholesterol if loperamide is not working. Um, a few other unique side effects that jump out to me that I always wanna think about. Um, carfilzomib has a risk for For cardiac toxicity, Um, we see hypertension as well as a risk for heart failure with carfilzomib, especially at the higher doses. Um, So if you have a patient that has a history of any cardiac disease, um, maybe getting a baseline echocardiogram would be worthwhile, just having a baseline there. And then counseling them to monitor for signs of heart failure, such as shortness of breath or edema. With bortezomib, um, peripheral neuropathy is a dose limiting toxicity with this agent. Um, And it's one that unfortunately we don't always see that the peripheral neuropathy is reversible. So, again, I, I try to be proactive about having our counseling our patients to let us know when they start experiencing any level of that toxicity so that we can implement treatment. Uh, We may need to dose reduce. That may be the best form of treatment for that side effect. But the agents that we most commonly are going to use for peripheral neuropathy are gabapentin, pregabalin, um, and duloxetine. And we can, uh, start, you know, low on the gabapentin dose and titrate up. Uh, we can add duloxetine into that. Um, so really being proactive about having patients report their side effects, I think is key to the success of managing some of these supportive care measures, um, I talked a little bit about the infection risk that we see with our anti-CD38 antibodies. I do want to highlight two other um, unique things. First, the anti-CD38 monoclonal antibodies of daratumumab and isatuximab will interfere with the blood type and screening process. So it it can be worked around in the blood bank if they are told that the patient was on an anti-CD38 but ideally you would want to draw the patient's type and screen before they're ever exposed to that agent so that the blood bank would know and have that data available um, if they ever need blood in the future. Um, And it's also important if, if your patient lives in a rural area and they're going to be going to an emergency room that's not your hospital, making sure that they tell the medical professionals at that institution that hey, I'm on a CD38 monoclonal antibody, my my blood type and screen um, might have some interference. And then these agents can also cause hepatitis B reactivation. So we want to screen for any prior exposure to hepatitis B, um, looking at the hep B surface antigen and core antibody. And if they have a history of hep B, we would want to start prophylaxis. uh, That can be done with intakavir or tenofovir. And then two other drugs that I will briefly mention, um, Belantamab-Mafidotin, our first-in-class BCMA antibody drug conjugate, also has a REMS program. We love our REMS programs in myeloma world. Um, And this REMS program is due to the ocular side effects. So uh, patients can have keratopathy, which is microcysts that form on the cornea of the eye, which can also affect the vision. Uh, None of the side effects that happen to the eyes are permanent side effects. They will resolve with dose holds and, and discontinuation of the drug. But patients have to see an eye doctor prior to each dose for clearance to continue on the therapy. And they need to use preservative-free artificial tear eye drops four times a day and avoid contact lenses. Um, So this is something that to make sure patients are aware of before they start and then the last unique drug in our myeloma world is Selenexor, um, that first-in-class XPO1 inhibitor. And the unfortunate side effect of selinexor is some, some significant nausea and vomiting. So we do wanna be proactive and start anti-emetics um, ahead of time, not wait until a patient is having these side effects. So um, in my practice, we recommend a dual anti-emetic therapy Something with a long-acting agent, such as olanzapine or uh, rolapitant, can can be used as well. And then having an agent available for their breakthrough, such as zolendantron. So really wanting to be pre- proactive with some of these known side effects with these drugs to try to get ahead of it and prevent it uh, before patients experience them, I think is, is very key.
0: I'm sure with the administration, the types of drugs, combination, uh, titration strategies, there's a workflow that you have um, in place for uh, treatment and for your patients. So what is your workflow or thought process when you are initiating therapy?
1: Yeah, so we work very closely as a team and when the decision is made that a patient will start a certain regimen, um, my workflow is to look through as a pharmacist first, uh, the first place I typically go is is their medication list. So look through their other medications, screen for any drug interactions or anything that would be of concern for starting this new regimen. Um, I also will take a look at their treatment history what have they had before? Um, Did we dose reduce or discontinue anything based off tolerability? One of the big ones is dexamethasone as it is a common thread through all of these regimens. But if we had to discontinue dex in the previous therapy due to um, high blood sugars or or insomnia or other issues that a patient may be experiencing. I want to think about that in their new regimen and, and should we make any upfront dose reductions? Um, so those are some of the things that that I kind of initially think through when a new treatment selection is is chosen is Are there any dose adjustments for for drug interactions um, liver renal impairment um, or any tolerability concerns from any previous therapies?
0: What about the counseling sessions with patients? Uh, what do you share with your patients um, when when you're talking with them
1: Yeah, I think this is one of my favorite parts of my job. I I really enjoy this time with patients and their families um, to to give them an an understanding of what to expect with their new therapy. So I approach it um, by starting out kind of broadly with the names of the drugs, how they're given, and on what days they're given. And, you know, maybe I'm imposing my own learning style on my patients, but I usually come with a calendar because I'm a visual learner. And it's helpful to um, sometimes explain these complicated regimens with a sample calendar in front, in front of them. So I, I start out broadly with what they're getting, how it's going to be administered, and on what days this is going to happen, and what drugs they're responsible for at home versus what drugs are going to be given to them in the infusion center. Um, And then we go one by one. Uh, We go one by one through each drug, the the most common side effects of that therapy. Um, And then I kind of put everything together and say, you know, when we combine everything together, these are things that we worry about uh, with, you know, low blood counts monitoring for infection monitoring for any bruising and bleeding Um, and I think that really going taking the time to to go through each drug individually is is how I find it most helpful for patients and then giving them those calendars and and adherence strategies is helpful as well a lot of patients use their phone alarm 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 feature to set their alarm, especially if it's a weekly medication such as exasamine, you know, having that weekly alarm to remind them to take their medication can be helpful. Um, and then we will counsel patients on any drug interactions to let us know if they're starting any new therapies. A big one is even herbals and supplements. One that is unique in our world is vitamin C interacts with bortezomib. And a lot of people think vitamin C is harmless and great and boosts their immune system, but it actually could be doing some harm by interacting with their bortezomib therapy. So I try to make note of saying, you know, tell me what you're taking beyond just your prescription drugs. What herbs and supplements are you taking? So we can screen those too. Uh, But I think that's my general approach for our counseling
0: session it's really something that over-the-counter vitamins supplements um, most of the time our consumers our patients are out there thinking everything's fine but that does play into this so it kind of brings me back to thinking about the timing of this so that you can constantly come back to your patient and check in on them how often are you following up with patients
1: we, that is a really good point. Um, we follow up with our patients typically at the start of each new cycle. So that's most commonly going to be once a month or once every three weeks, depending on the regimen. Um, and we it's a team approach. So we we do rely on the nurses and the infusion center to inform us if, if they hear anything from the patient in between those cycles. Um, our nurses in the clinic are fabulous and and touch base with the patients multiple times throughout the cycle as well. So it is definitely a team effort. And but I would say we as a team, all together, we tend to see our patients in clinic once a month.
0: Okay, so you know, these podcasts um, are, are helpful, because they're nice fillers, especially if you're traveling, or you're walking or you're driving somewhere. But I also think of other ways of learning. And I'd, I'd love to hear from you, Catherine, what you do. So how are you staying up to date with drug approvals in emerging, emerging therapies?
1: Yes, this is the challenge of the oncology world for sure, because while it's great that we have so many new approvals all the time, um, it definitely can be challenging to stay up to date. And I find myself, you know, in my siloed world of myeloma and it's trying to stay up to date with even all of the other malignancies can be challenging. But um, I would say that I rely heavily on some of the organizations and listservs that I'm members of um, HOPA is one that I rely on heavily They send out weekly emails of new drug approvals and new updates um, and then partnering with with organizations like PTCE who sends out listservs of updates from conferences. Um, that's how I find it most helpful that I can quickly scroll through an email um, and see if there's a study or a highlight that pertains to me that I need to read through in more detail. Um, but I think that's mostly, how um, I find that I can stay up to date. And then of course, now that we're back in in-person conferences, that has been a great pleasure as well.
0: All right, so last question, just like last time, uh, <laughs> what what would you say is the single most important takeaway for our pharmacists listening in?
1: I think the most important takeaway for our pharmacists listening in is the complexity of these patients goes beyond whatever diagnosis you're typically seeing the patient for. So while they're coming to us for their myeloma and I can play a big role in helping select their myeloma directed therapy and the supportive care measures that come with that, they still have several other disease states going on. And anything that we may do for their myeloma may impact those other disease states. Um, so, you know, the dexamethasone that I feel is so critical to treat their, their cancer might affect their diabetes. So I think just remembering that the patient has a lot going on um, and, and working with them as a whole to reduce pill burden when you can and make sure that um, they are comfortable with all of their medications is, is the role of the pharmacist in and, and this situation, in my opinion.
0: Well, Catherine, we thank you again for coming back and sharing with us more about your passion and treatment, specifically of uh, multiple myeloma. It's been it's been great talking with you.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Supportive care and multiple myeloma can have a major impact on the quality of life and the survival outcomes uh, for patients. pharmacists, you're leading the way, your, your treatments, uh, your, your experience, your documentation. This is so important. If there's ever anything we can do for you, pharmacists, please reach out to the Pharmacy Times Continuing Education Division, PTCE, or the Pharmacy Podcast Network. We absolutely love serving our pharmacists with good, uh, reliable information in, in CE as well. And with that, we thank you so much for everything you do in pharmacy and for listening to the Pharmacy Podcast.
1: Thanks for tuning in to the PTCE Pharmacy Connect Podcast. Your feedback is important to us. Please share with us your thoughts on this episode and other topics you'd like to learn about. Go to PharmacyTimes.org forward slash contact and send us a message.